Welcome to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb, helping you find purpose and joy in your life and relationships. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. Then asked to make the time announcement, we're going to go till 8 o'clock. We're going to break for refreshments till 8.15, and I'm told that this is a very punctual group. So we will... Um, I'll break at 8, and I'll start at 8.15, and whoever is here, we'll just chat with you till 9 o'clock is the plan. So that's the schedule for the evening. If you need to leave earlier or stretch out and go to sleep, that's okay. You can do whatever you like. You know, this uh, emphasis on old... Um, he said, I've been a mentor for a very long time, I think you began with, and uh, you know, it is one of the scary things about getting older is you do run into people who've heard you years before and make comments. And um, that just happened tonight, but actually it was a very wonderful comment. Janie Miller is sitting up in the front, and she just handed me something that um, I didn't know existed, but a copy she wanted me to have. Her husband went to be with the Lord two months ago. After six years of suffering from an accident where he wasn't able to speak, generally for at all, really, for a six-year period, and about a year before the accident, he was at a conference of mine. Um, was it here in Denver or a conference of mine? And um, she gave me his notes from that conference. And the first line is, God says, trust me in times of tragedy, a year before an accident that left him unable to speak for six years and then went home two months ago. And then he has some other notes here that um, what people remember. Um, one here referring to something I said, Larry purchased an overhead projector to give his son's devotions before they were 10 years old. <laughs> true. <laughs> Actually, the time I decided to do that was after my mentor, when I was in graduate school, the guy that brought me back to the Lord when I had pretty much given up Christianity in grad school, when um, he, he apostatized. He renounced Christianity and dumped his wife, has gone through several wives since. And when I got word that this gentleman had uh, abandoned the faith, a man that kept me in the faith and brought me back to it years earlier, it just scared me to death. And um, so that night we had family devotions as we've never had them before. And I remember pointing at both of my sons. One of them's here, he's 35 now, so this goes back just a couple years. But I clearly remember the kitchen where we're having devotions and I literally recall pointing my finger in both my sons' faces after a stirring devotional from God's word where they were just in rapt attention. And I said, you too will live for God. And I remember the older son, he kind of went, I'll give it some thought, you know. <laughs> so that stuck out to Herb, is his name? That stuck out to Herb. And then uh, I guess at that particular conference, I talked about writing a letter to your wife. And Janie said, it's okay if I read just a couple of phrases here that Janie gave to me just tonight that Herb wrote in 1996 a year before his accident. Dear Janie, I want you to know I love you. Many times my actions don't show that. I've always felt that you have an inner beauty that exceeds any outward beauty or inner beauty of any woman I know. The expressions of love you have shown me are truly extraordinary, extraordinary, exceptional, exceedingly, abundantly 
bountiful. The extraordinary part, blessed by God, is the beauty that has survived a million of assaults by me that could cause you to feel that you might not measure up to my standards. Most honest husbands would write that. The truth is that my vision for you is that you'd measure up to Christ's standards. And you are and have faithfully done that. I'm so proud and pleased with you in spite of me. And without me, God has worked in you because you've seen and heard him and survived me. Bless you, my beloved wife. You're humble. And I pray eternally, eternally grateful husband. Just got that about 10 minutes ago. Wanted to share it with you. Well, when Fran invited me, I understood that I'd be chatting with about 10 or 15 people, about small groups, so it's a little different. Um, but I'm um, comfortable with larger groups, I guess. I spoke at Promise Keepers last year four times. The first time I spoke at the PK was in Washington, D.C., and uh, I was the second speaker that evening. The first speaker was Tony Evans. Anybody heard of Tony Evans? He's kind of a sort of a dull, you know, <laughs> reserved, quiet sort of a guy. Well, he charged everybody up unbelievably, and about 12,000 people in D.C., and he had the gospel invitation. I think about 14,000 came forward of the, of the 12,000 that were there. And then I was to follow Tony... Um, and, uh, and after I was finished, I was to introduce Michael W. Smith for a concert. So I was sandwiched in between Tony and Michael. And when I was standing way back there before coming out, the MC introduced me. And I walked out in front of these 12,000 guys and stood there. And I don't know what happened, but I went dead inside. I really did. I just had nothing. I just went totally dead and flat just looking at 12,000 guys just stood there like this looking at a stadium and I had nothing I wanted to say to anybody <clears throat> my topic was passion <laughs> and I wish I'd had the courage to do what I think I was led to do and didn't do I wish I'd had the courage to grab a stool sit there and tell the guys I'm dead will you spend my 35 minutes praying for me I didn't do that. I pulled out some stories. I pulled out my talk, and I pulled it off. And the Spirit got some good out of it, but in spite of me. I've wrestled a lot about tonight, actually. I spent the last week really praying and thinking and studying. I got about 20, 30 pages of scribbled notes, and I uh, don't know why it didn't come easily to me. as what I wanted to talk about with you tonight. I knew my topic, but I didn't know how to approach it. And partly because small groups have been generally a frustrating experience for me all of my life. They left me empty, generally, and frustrated. Um, but that isn't the way it's supposed to be. And that isn't the way it needs to be. And I've been doing my best to give thought to, to what, what is the unique value of getting together with Christians in a small group on a regular basis? What's the unique value of that? 
Church is made up of a lot of parts. There's a unique value to, to the corporate worship and preaching that you never want to minimize. There's a unique value just to the music that, that nourishes the soul. There's a unique value to, to just worshiping the Lord together. There's a unique value to hearing the Word of God taught, to worshiping the Lord's Supper together, which I know you do every week, which warms my heart. There's a unique value to, to all the good things that a church does, to outreach and to, and to fun parties and all of that. But what's the unique value of, of small groups? What can happen in a small group that... That really doesn't happen as fully and as well any place other than in that small group. And uh, I want to talk about that with you tonight. And one of the things that I'm, I'm not going to do is um, I'm not going to outline a, um, a series of steps of here's what I think you ought to do in a small group because I don't know what they are. And I think that um, when you get involved with Christians on a regular basis, to acknowledge the mystery of the Spirit in that setting as well as in every other setting requires a... Um, requires a momentum toward a vision that takes a variety of forms depending on the individual. So to come up with a single formula for how to do small groups, I think is a mistake. What I believe God has put on my heart um, to say tonight, one of my heroes who's now with the Lord, a man named Buck Hatch, is a, a man who only spoke what the Spirit gave him. And uh, several people have told me that they heard Buck Hatch on a number, number of occasions when he'd been ministering publicly. He would say in the middle of a sermon, more than once he said this, he did this, he said in the middle of a sermon, the Spirit of God is no longer energizing what I'm saying, there's no point in continuing, he went and sat down. Wouldn't that save us a lot of time? When, you know, save Most of my conferences would last about 20 minutes if he did it that way. So I don't know what's going to happen tonight, but um, I want to be available to whatever God wants. Rachel and I flew to Toronto on Monday, a couple days ago, and um, what happened there leads me to some of the comments I want to make tonight about small groups. We flew to Toronto Monday afternoon to preview a film that I really don't mind endorsing publicly in the setting, a film that will be released in about a month. September 26th is the premiere release in uh, Colorado Springs. It's going to be in major motion pictures, and it's done at high-budget Hollywood level. It's a Christian film, and that usually means cheesy. Um, this is not a cheesy film. This is an incredible film. It's called The Gospel of John. And the script for the film is every word in the Gospel of John, beginning John 1.1 and going to John 21.25 from the Good News Bible translation. And it's all acted out, of course, and the words that John records Jesus spoke, the actor Jesus says, the words that John records Peter spoke, and Nathaniel and, and Mary and uh, Pilate are all spoken by the actors, and whatever's not spoken, Christopher Plummer narrates. It's incredibly well done. And I was in tears through half of the movie. And the thing that really impressed me about the movie, as I watched this depiction of Jesus, I've seen a number of, as you all have, a number of Hollywood depictions of Jesus. And um, have any of you seen Philip Yancey's film clips yeah. when he wrote the book, The Jesus I Never Knew? Yeah. Um, I was with him before he published that book, and he showed the film clips of a variety of um, productions of Jesus. And I remember as, as I watched them, the point that Philip made, I couldn't agree with more. I wasn't drawn to any of them. I just didn't like this character. It was about 10 years ago or so that I looked over all the sermon notes that I've preached since I've been in my 20s, and of the, I don't know, thousand sermons that I've preached, I noticed up until about 8 or 10 years ago, about 95 of them were from the Old Testament. My texts were always Old Testament. I began pondering why that would be, and the answer that I discerned about 8 or 9 years ago was that I didn't like Jesus. And I wanted to speak from the Old Testament because I didn't like the way Jesus talked to people. I didn't like it when 
when uh, the, the, the disciples came to Jesus after he had offended the Pharisees yet again and said to him one of the dumbest sentences that any of them ever said, uh, are you aware that you've offended the Pharisees? <laughs> and it just seems to me that Jesus should have said something like, um, is, is, is this bothering you? Shouldn't he have been empathic? Isn't that what counselors do? Um, Jesus just was not very empathic. And what he said was, in Peterson's rendition, are you that slow? And I didn't like this Jesus. But when I watched this film yesterday morning in Toronto, um, I think I saw something closer to the Jesus that I'm falling in love with. To the person that's the most compelling person you'll ever meet. The person who, when you meet him, you're going to say, anything for you. Anything. As I watched this movie, I, I met him, I think, in a different way. I saw the fire in his eyes as he overthrew the tables of money changers in the temple. It was so well done in the movie. I saw him tell the religious leaders, you don't know God. You're of your father, the devil. I saw him look in the eyes of an adulteress and say with holy tenderness, I don't condemn you. I was so impressed with the way this Jesus was, was just never, ever threatened. Um, you all ever get threatened in conversation? Anybody ever just a, a tinge defensive? <laughs> I've gotten past that, but some of you perhaps are still struggling with that. Jesus was, was just so clear that he was so so absorbed with his father that he was centered in his relationship with his father and when people hurt him deeply, he was never controlled by that. When, when people failed, like Peter, he moved toward them. The John 21 scene where they're sitting around the beach and the Lord had just made breakfast for them after their fishing, you know, the, ascent, the resurrection, pre-ascension and... and uh, the Lord turns to Peter, and just um, they were sitting there kind of awed with the Lord's presence. He, he turned and he says, Peter, do you, do, you, do you love me? And Peter, yeah, Lord, I do. And then he just took another bite. And, Lord, do you, do you, Peter, do you, do you love me? Yes, I do. Third time, Peter, do you, do you love me? Lord, you know all things. And with tenderness that just melted my heart, he said, feed my sheep. He said it three times. I thought, how do I move toward people that betrayed me? How many times do I say to people that love me, that hurts. I wish you wouldn't do that. The Lord never said that. Three disciples fell asleep while he's going to go to the cross. He never said that. Always moving ahead to please his father. And therefore being totally free to be profoundly engaged and kind with people who weren't there for them, for him. And as I saw all that, here was, here's, the, here's the thought that ties in with tonight. Um, as, I, as I watched this depiction of Jesus using only words from the gospel, so everything was from God in terms of the wording, and believed that the acting was as close representation as I can imagine of what it would have been like to actually be with Jesus, as I watched that, I, I remember it... At one point, halfway through the movie, or maybe toward, more toward the end, I remember just with eyes that were getting very moist, I said, could I become like him? 
Could, could I really become like that? Clearly, I'm not there. And one thing I'm awfully aware of is growth is slow. I've been a Christian now 51 years. I really thought I'd be further ahead than I am now. There are times I, I actually get a little discouraged on occasion. My goodness, I've said things that shouldn't be said. Um, I'm a mess. What did Paul mean when he said to the Galatians who were betraying the core message of the gospel, what did Paul mean when he said, I'm in the pains of childbirth until, until this person who handled the Pharisees with, with a holy vigor and a fearless courage and who handled uh, the, the adulterous woman with a gentleness and a tenderness, who restored a man who betrayed him with incredible wisdom and love. Well, what would it mean for me actually to become like, like this person? What would it mean for, for that person to be formed in me? We got home last night. Our plane arrived about 11, 11.30. We were driving into our neighborhood around midnight. And we pulled up to a stop sign, and there was a, a policeman there with his lights flashing, giving somebody apparently a ticket. And um, it's at a lonely road, and I turned at the stop sign. I stopped at the stop sign very fully. <laughs> People do what, they, what is inspected, not what is expected. I got a ticket for running through a stop sign about four months ago. I told the cop, he's a young cop, I think it was first day in the job, he apologized for giving me a ticket. And he said, I'm really sorry, but if you'd have even slowed down, I wouldn't have. And, <laughs> and I said, well, don't feel so bad. I said, it's a $30 ticket, but it's about a dime for every, line, every stop sign I've gone through. Um, I'm not real bright. But as I turned, stopped the stop sign and turned to go up our road, and the policeman was over here with his light still flashing, my wife, I asked her permission to say this, my wife uh, commented as we pulled away from the policeman, honey, it's 35 miles an hour. Anybody here married? <laughs> you married, Peter? Married. Who are you married to? Married. Susan? Oh, married to the girl next to you? Good. And um, <laughs> has Susan ever counseled you when you're driving? <clears throat> Full submission at all times. Full submission. <laughs> Uh, Peter, Peter, denial is just the name of river in Egypt. <laughs> if the choice is drugs or denial, choose denial, you're doing fine. Um, when, when Rachel said that, something stirred in me, and I, I want to take away any humor here. You know what stirred in me? It was the enemy of my soul. Something unkind stirred in me toward the woman I'm in love. There was something in me that I know. That's what stirred in me. How's she feeling right then? Love does Christ love the church? What would it be if Christ were formed in me at that moment at 12 o'clock last night when Rachel said, the speed limit here is 35? What would it mean for Christ to be formed in me at that moment? I want you to reflect for just a minute. What would it be like in your life, with your situation, what would it be like for the life of Christ to literally flow through your soul as you relate to your spouse? 
the one who sinned against you far more <laughs> grievously. It wasn't a sin on my wife's part, but has hurt you in ways that have really been hard. What would it be like for Christ to be formed in your soul in the middle of that kind of a situation or whatever situation you're facing or for Christ to be formed in your soul in the middle of your circumstances with your kids or your money situation, your boss, your friend who just snubbed you, your memories, the nasty letter that you got today, the critical phone call that I got today. I came away from this film, and we had a discussion afterward, and just about 15, 20 of us maybe, and I, my, my contribution, one of the things I said to the panel up front, the producer, the, and some other folks that were involved in the filming, I said, you know, in a month I'm going to be talking to 6,000 counselors in Nashville. The American Association of Christian Counselors having their every other year World Congress, and five, 6,000 people come, and I wish they'd show that film here. Because I would love to persuade the Christian counseling community that their, expertise, that their expertise has zero power. I'd love to persuade the counseling community that their PhDs, you just need to pronounce it to feel its impact, food. <laughs> I'd like them to see that maybe what counseling is all about is synonymous with discipleship. Maybe what counseling is all about is the same thing really as spiritual direction. Maybe what, what Christian counseling is all about is somehow releasing the spirit in a person's soul so that Christ is, is formed in them. And if that would happen, anorexics would eat and sexual addicts would be pure and wives would feel frustrated, hurt, and dead inside would genuinely love their husbands and husbands who have angrily given up ever feeling appreciated by their wives would reach for a higher goal. Then I thought about our topic tonight, small groups, and I, I felt a stirring. The stirring has gone up and down. At times I feel none. At times I feel some. I felt a stirring as I thought about small groups with what it would be like for me to become like Jesus at midnight on a road. If we're willing, and I'm hoping tonight, I do feel very at home here. I'm so grateful for this church, and I know what it means to my son and daughter-in-law and grandkids and some, so many close friends that are here. And um, I just love to think that God might be able to bless you people through me a little bit tonight. I really would. You know, could we just pray for that just for a minute before we go? I'm going to present a a vision that um, feels radical to me. And I'm a little awkward in saying it. This is all new stuff. I didn't pull out a message from a year ago and rework it for tonight. I didn't do that. Now, what I'm going to say, I've not said publicly before. and it may, you know, just might be a big yawner. I don't know. Um, wouldn't be the first time. Um, or God might do something with it. And I'd, I'd love for that to be the case. I'd love us to make ourselves available to him for whatever he has. Because we could become a little more like Jesus. And it could happen in a small group. Now let me caution you before you pray. We're never going to get all the way there until we're home. We all clear on that? If you would like me to really turn you into a wonderful, perfect representation of Jesus, I can do it. But I must kill you. (laughs) No one has ever left my office cured. Never happened. Everyone leaves my office still a mess. 
So I'm going to ask us just to spend just to send a, spend a minute, maybe pray amongst yourselves, just for a minute or two, ask God to bless the rest of this evening any way he chooses to. Let's just spend a few minutes in prayer. Just pray amongst yourselves any way you choose. I'll pray in just a minute. We'll start up again. Gather in small groups if you like. Just talk to each other. Pray out loud. Lord, you didn't die just to get us out of hell. You certainly have done that, but you died to make us like yourself. And a measure of that is that we could actually relate to each other the way you relate. And not just the way you related on earth that we have a picture of in the Gospels and Rachel and I saw a marvelous visual representation of it, but you died so we could relate to each other the way you and the Father relate. Lord, that's out of our league. If that's going to happen, it's going to take a miracle. But we're living miracles because we're clean. And that's a miracle. We're going to heaven. That's a miracle. We're indwelt by the Spirit, and that's a miracle. And we're actually becoming like Jesus, and that's a miracle. We want more of that. Use tonight for that purpose, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. I want to propose a vision and a process for small groups. It comes directly out of the text that lifts small groups beyond the good things that most small groups do. I want to suggest to you that if the central purpose of your small group is Bible study, you're missing the center. I'm going to suggest to you that if the central purpose of your small group is developing a sense of belonging and making friends, so when you come to a large congregation on Sunday morning, there's people that you know, if that's your central purpose, that's wonderful, but you're missing the center. I'm going to suggest to you that if your central purpose is getting to know each other deeply, if you're getting together for the purpose of really knowing and being known, your group's going to end up eventually in division. Disillusionment and aloneness. Eventually, there's going to be camps developing and all sorts of things. John Stott, in the recent issue of Christianity Today, was asked about evangelism. You know John Stott, the seasoned um, saint of the, of the day. And uh, he said, what's the weakness in evangelism today? He was asked that question, and he said, uh, Christians have yet to provide a counterculture that's compelling. What is it that we as Christians can do that cannot be done apart from the work of the Spirit? Small group is an opportunity for that to happen. What is it? What is the center? I want to propose a a way of thinking about small groups that doesn't take away all the other wonderful things. Bible study, prayer, getting to know each other, telling your stories, uh, enjoying each other, having parties, all that's great stuff. But if that's the center, then I think we're missing it. And I want to urge you beyond getting involved in small groups that are primarily social. I'm not opposed to that. I think it's fine to get together and just have a good time, enjoy people, and catch up. That's great. If that's all you do, I think you're, you're secular. Pagans can do that. If you're getting together and just study the Bible, and you're having a study group, not a social group, but a study group, then my guess is that you can go for years in a Bible study group, and your soul can remain unobserved. Remember a lady that was involved in a formal discipling program with somebody and the person she was discipling, a younger woman, kept bringing up struggles in her life and the woman, the discipler, was getting impatient. She wanted to teach her the Bible. And after a while, it literally happened this way. The discipler said to the young woman, would you please stop talking about your life so I can disciple you? <laughs> Bible study, if you stop with Bible study, 
and don't realize that the Bible was not given to us to master truth. Truth is not the final reality in the universe. The final reality in the universe is relationship. You believe that if you believe in the Trinity. So final reality is not propositional, a bunch of sentences that are true. Final reality is passionate relationship. And reading the Bible is for the purpose of worshiping God, relating to Him and relating to others. And if all you're doing is Bible study, you're probably missing. Or if you're in a group that's designed for support, where people make known their struggles, and you're there to support them in their struggles and to promote healing and wisdom, recovery from addictions of all sorts, and resolution of marriage difficulties and guidance and support through the journey of life. If you're involved in support groups, you're probably going to have um, vulnerability competitions. I believe most of us come into groups aiming way too low. Aim rather to exploit the mostly unreleased power of community to see Christ actually formed in your soul. And when you realize that every group you're a part of, whether it's focusing on this or whether it happens incidentally, whether it's intentional or incidental, that every group ultimately is, is about spiritual formation. Every group ultimately is about becoming like Jesus. Every group ultimately is about the power of the Spirit being more and more released in a person's life. Whatever you're doing, that's the center. And if you begin to believe that your, your movement in community is, is, is to release the largely unreleased power that's in community, then what you'll end up realizing is what I'm realizing in the group that we've been a part of now for two years, is that we are first graders. You'll be humbled. You realize you don't know what you're doing. That's why if you have a, a lockstep program, you're probably quenching the spirit. And you'll only feel his power when you're Stumbling into the adventure of his rhythm, replacing programs with rhythm. Now, a little caution as, um, as we go to the break here, another 15 minutes. A little caution as I begin talking about what I believe can happen in a small group. The caution is that I believe it happens very slowly over time and very gradually and almost imperceptibly. One of the things I've been fascinated by at our last school of spiritual direction, or I guess a couple of schools ago, I... I pick a book of the Bible and I study it for a couple of months before I get there and, and then I get up every morning at five and plan my devotion for the day and ask the Spirit for whatever he wants to give me for the day. And as I taught through Romans at a couple, a couple of direction schools ago, I, um, I remember the question that I was asking in my own mind is, Paul, what are you so excited about? I am not ashamed. This is not just a little bit rhetoric. Paul is just screaming, I am not ashamed of this gospel. Man, this is, let me tell you, this has the power. And we hear that power, and we all want to believe that it means something explosive. Well, it's the word dunamis, isn't it, in the Greek? We got the word dynamite from that. But you know what? The Greeks didn't have any explosives. Paul wasn't thinking about dynamite. He was thinking about something very different. Slow, steady power that sometimes looks like no power at all. Luther called it left-handed power. We'll see his right hand someday. Today we're seeing his left hand. And it isn't very impressive. Look around. Who do you know really well that you are so impressed with their growth?
Don't expect your small groups to produce dramatic change by exploding sin, blasting it away, and man, are things going unbelievably well. A couple you're working with 10 years from now, they'll still be fighting. 10 years from now, she'll tell me again, it's 35 miles an hour, and, and I'll say, my small group failed. So how do we move into a small group with a vision that got Paul excited about the power of the gospel to transform people? Well, I want to look at a couple of passages. Will you take your Bibles and look at Romans 8 and so we get a vision for what a small group can do and then we'll see how far we get before the break and then we'll look at the process after the break. Romans chapter 8 and let me just read you a couple of key verses here. I think all that... Italian food is making me thirsty. Romans 8. Let me read you verse 5 and 6. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. What does the sinful nature desire? Anybody still have a sinful nature? Yes. No hands went up. This is not a broken group. Okay. <laughs> but those who live in accordance with the Spirit, capital S, have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. What's your mind set on? I want to think about the difference between what Peter said in his rendition. He talks about in this passage the difference between self-obsession and God-obsession. This reflect with me for a moment as I talk out loud and you think with me about where, where you might be self-obsessed. May I suggest to you that in our Christian culture, we're making far too much of the notion of desire. The question that we ask all the time is, what do you long for from your mate, from your friends, from your small group, from your church, from God? And that focus, though not entirely wrong, that focus, that focus generally nourishes self-obsession. Because our natural self, our nature apart from the Spirit's invasion, desires to be treated a certain way, to feel a certain way, to have certain things go our way. Focus on all that. Focus on, well, when, when I turn right at a stop sign, and I see a, a speed limit sign, and I see a cop with flashing lights behind me, it might occur to me that I should obey the speed limit, and I don't need to be treated like a kid. Those who live according to the sinful nature are self-obsessed. Well, do you understand how as a kid I went through these problems? Do you understand my psychological background? Do you understand where I felt unaffirmed? Do you understand where I felt out of it? Do you understand where I felt like a nerd? Do you understand where I felt incompetent? Do you understand that the few places where I felt competent meant the world to me and I live for affirmation and why can't you give me a little bit that I know how to drive my car? <laughs> I'm a psychological mess, take care of me, be my therapist. Forget this wife stuff. <laughs> ah, what a mess. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> Focus on all that you desire from somebody else, and your soul will shrink. You'll become a ghost, becoming less the man or woman that you were saved to become. But set your mind on what the Spirit desires and you'll be God-obsessed. You know, that's very radical. I want you to hear the radicalness of this. I 
was looking at John 9 after watching the film yesterday morning. I went back and looked at John again today a bit. And, um, the scene where the Lord came on the blind man, the disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Notice Jesus did not say, neither, but sometimes these things just happen. What he said, if you look at it, is really remarkable, and it kind of hit me in a new way when I watched Jesus say it in the film. Jesus said, neither this man nor his parents' sin is the cause of his blindness, but this happened 30 years of suffering without being able to see. This happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. What is the spirit obsessed with? My comfort? If so, he's not doing a terribly good job all the time. And therefore, my lack of comfort so often energizes my prayer life. So my prayer life often has a spirit of demand with my fist clenched and my mind can be set on the sinful nature while I pray. The Spirit's obsessed with revealing the Father through Jesus. It's really all he cares about. Because he knows when the Father is revealed through Jesus, we're the beneficiaries. So God's obsession means that when bad things happen, your mind is set on how you can reveal the nature of God and the way you relate and the way you respond. Your mind is not set on fixing the bad thing. And your mind is not set on recovering from the bad thing. Whether it's your wife reminding you to obey the speed limit, or your husband not nurturing your soul, or your kid breaking your heart, or your loneliness overcoming you, or you fill in the blank. God obsession. The great problem, of course, with most of us, is that we're self-obsessed in ways we don't recognize. Jim Houston, a man that I know most of you know, one of my heroes, He's a man that I look at and say, look what God has done. He's got a way to go, but look what God has done. Uh, he said somewhere, the purpose of community is to undermine our self-deception. I don't recognize where I'm self-obsessed. Sometimes it's blatant and it's hard for even a fool to miss it, but sometimes my self-obsession is well disguised and maybe in community that can be, that can be dealt with. Turn to 2 Peter. I want to cover this before the break. 2 Peter, a major passage I want you to look at is a, getting a vision for what a small group could do. Bear with me as I set the stage here, perhaps a little too lengthily. 2 Peter, chapter 1, Paul, or Peter rather, starts off by identifying himself as a servant. First thing he says is servant. Just to make sure you get the force of this, there's five words in the Greek for servant, and this is the lowest of the words. Five words for somebody who serves, and this is the one that means the most abject, servile, lowest. One commentator puts it this way, that when Peter says he's a servant, he's a slave, a bond slave, he's saying, one who serves another to the disregard of his own interests. Does that happen in your small group? Or when somebody else tells their story, are you sitting there saying, could you cut it short, I want my turn? Or when somebody tells their story yet again, how did that person with the curse of gab get into our group? Couldn't the leader manage that a little better? Isn't there a course for leaders on that kind of thing? Peter says, I'm here to serve others with a complete disregard 
for my own interests. How do I feel when Rachel says it's a 25-mile speed zone? How do I feel? It doesn't matter. Well, it sure does. It matters to me. Well, it matters to God, too. He cares. Speak to her, Lord. <laughs> and then he gets confused and says, Larry... Listen to what he says in verse 3. Get the force of these words. They're unbelievable. The actual literal translation in verse 3 starts off in the NIV, his divine power has given us, but what's really being said is clearly assume something. That's what he's starting off with. Assume that his divine power, dunamis, same word, has been lavishly given. Assume that his divine power, and one definition of the word dunamis is a power which overcomes all resistance. There's something in me that wants to rise up and speak against somebody who treats me poorly. There's somebody, something in me that wants to defend myself and, and let somebody else know. And there's something in me that's like that. And God has given me a divine power that can overcome all resistance to his divine power. His divine power has been lavishly given. The word forgiven is not nearly strong enough, the translation. It really means an act of lavish generosity. The divine power of God, the power that raised Jesus from the dead, is now available to me to overcome my flesh. It's a power for what? His divine power has been given us, has given us everything we need for two things, for life and godliness. Let me define those two terms for you. The word life, there's two words in the Greek for life. One is kind of biological life and one is spiritual. Zoe is the Greek word here. And what it really means is one who is fully alive with, with passionate energy. And godliness qualifies it by saying one who is fully alive with passionate energy toward God. Energy rightly directed. That's godliness. So that you're dependent not on how somebody treats you for what reality is controlling your soul. You're dependent not on how your husband, your wife, your kids, your money, your job, your health, the doctor. You're dependent not on what is happening to you for for what is coming out of you, for what reality is stirring within you. Rather, there's a dependence on the Spirit that's stirring up that life that's already been put in us and been given to us by a generous power. And all that happens through our knowledge of Him when we see Christ. We're drawn by the promise that we could be like Him so that we escape self-obsession. By participating, this is one of the most incredible phrases in the Bible, by participating in the divine nature, What's the divine nature? It's a perfect community. It's a community that's radically other-centered, and we participate in the divine nature so that we relate to each other the way the Trinity relates to each other. If this verse is meaning what I think it means, then something incredible is available to us, and it's so incredible that if we participate in the divine nature, we can actually escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. And the idea of escape is to, is to run away actively, like Joseph ran away from Potiphar's wife, and 
problem is that we just don't see how we yield to self-obsession. We dignify sinful desires and call them reasonable and coming out of our psychological backgrounds and our hurts. And Of course I can't give my kindness and tenderness to, to her. Look what she did to me. How can I be encouraged today? You want to be the letter I got? Is there an escape from that? Well, it's the energy of God obsession. The animation that stirs in our soul that results from obsession with God. What I want you to think about as we break in two minutes is when you go into your small group, what are you expecting? It's time for your group. You get in the car, you drive. You have your car, you go into the room where the group meets, and there's your friends. Hey, good to see you. What's your goal? What are you expecting? What are you looking for? One last passage I'll introduce to you, then we'll break, and I'll develop it when we get back. Hebrews 10. I'm just hoping that, that I'll encourage you tonight to sign up for the small group, and when you go to the small group, to actually anticipate that something might happen. Beyond fussing about your view of the Scripture versus that person's view of the Scripture. That something might happen beyond the kind of prayer that keeps you from engaging. I'm really feeling low tonight. Let's pray. As opposed to, you're really feeling low. Huh. I don't want to go, huh. You might tell me where you're feeling low, and I'll be out of my depth. I won't know what to do. You'll tell me all about your struggles, and I'll sit there and say, this person needs professional help. I want you to go to your groups expecting more than wonderful Bible study, if that's what you're doing, that's great. Expecting more than significant prayer, if that's what you're gathering to do, that's great, that's wonderful. Expecting more than getting to enjoy your friends, that's wonderful. Expecting more than hearing each other's stories and getting to know each other at a deep level, I think that's wonderful. But I hope you expect more. I hope that you expect that the divine power of God that's made you a participant in the divine nature can be stirred up because of your time together. That's huge. That's Hebrews 10, the last passage before the break. Hebrews 10, verse... 24. After developing the whole theology of the New Covenant and talking about the better way through all of Hebrews and then talking about it more specifically in Hebrews 10, the writer says, actually in verse 25, he says, don't forsake assembling together. And the word for assembling is the same word for synagogue and the word literally is made up of two words. It means join with. Don't forsake joining with. Not fixing people. Live with mystery, you will till you die. Don't solve problems, join journeys. We'll discuss how that works a little bit. But don't forsake getting together in a context where you can join the journey of another. Folks, that can happen uniquely in a small group. And the verse 24, and when you get together, think, consider, it's a strong word, think really hard, think ongoingly, you're never going to get it. So think ongoingly about how we can spur. And the word there literally is a paroxysm. It means kind of a literal arousal. How can I talk to you in a way that by the time our evening is done, you'll be more aware of the animated life of Christ that's in you. And you'll be more aware of Godliness, the little word there is well worship, that you'll be more aware of an alignment with God that says, You're the one I'm depending on, not my spouse. 
If she hurts me, if he hurts me, my kids hurt me, my job hurts me, my boss hurts me, that's going to hurt. But my hurt isn't the point because I've got you. And how can I talk in a small group with you? And how can you talk with me? What can we do for that hour together, for those two hours together? What can we do that spurs each other on to live 2 Peter 1, 2, and 3? That's what we'll talk about at 8.15. See you then. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.